0: holding my mom's hand and clutching something else in the other as we were approaching that beautiful maroon Oldsmobile. Do you remember those old Oldsmobiles that were maroon in color? Back when Oldsmobile, their logo looked like a bunch of nautical flags put together. Do you remember that? Anyone have one of those back in the day? No? Chuck, you know what I'm talking... At least one person knows... Oldsmobile loved that maroon color and my mom had one and I remember vividly holding her hand and clutching something else in the other as we approached that car and I got in the back seat and I hopped up into my booster seat. I was only six or seven. And I remember as my mom took off out of the parking lot and went down the main road in the town I grew up in, I remember feeling so much joy because I had done it. I had gotten away with it. In that hand was the most beautiful blue marble you had ever seen, right? I gotten away with it for about two blocks until I noticed my mom's eyes in the rearview mirror. And instead of pulling onto Red Fox Road, our street, at the corner there, she pulled into the Baptist Church parking lot. We, we weren't Baptists, but she pulled in there, and I'm thinking, what's happening? And she stopped the car and And she turned around and she said, "Lauren, what is in your hand? I said, nothing. She said, where did you get that? I said, the store. She said, well, we didn't pay for that, did we? No. And she gave me a lesson. She said, honey, if I can't trust you in little things, how am I going to trust you with big things? Don't lie to me. Do you know what stealing is called? She gave me my first lesson on stealing, right? It's when you take something that doesn't belong to you and you don't pay for it. So we drove all the way back to Joanne Fabrics. I'm still scarred by Joanne Fabrics. When I, when I see them to this day, I do not like them, right? I, I remember picking up this marble. On a shelf there, a bag of marbles was ripped open and marbles had spilled out. And I just picked it up off the floor and I was playing with it. I'm just a little kid, Right? I didn't really think I was stealing, but, but I learned the lesson. And my mom insisted that we go back into Joanne Fabrics and that I be the one to tell the cashier what I had done, right? And so we walk out of the car, out of that beautiful maroon boat, and we go into Joanne Fabrics, and I remember going up to the counter, and my mom is waiting for me to tell the lady what had happened. I'm only six or seven years old, Right? adorable little Lauren, a little, a a dimple, a lisp. You can't really understand what I said at the time. I was in heavy speech therapy. And so it took, it took the cashier and me a while to kind of sync up. And there she was, this cashier who was annoyed that I was there. I mean, she was, this was the image. She's standing there. Her name, I don't know her name, Becky. I don't know. She's standing there chomping gum. She's like, what do you want? And I put the marble up on the counter, and and my voice quivering, I said, I I, I stole this marble. And she said, oh, I don't care, you can have it. And my mom said, no! (laughs) No, he can't! And she grabbed my hand, and we walked out of the store, right? Got back in the car, and off we went. Anyone have a story like that from their life? I think Jonathan had a story about Sophie Margaret. Yeah, anyone, anyone steal? Yep, yep, yep. Dishonesty, right? If you're not faithful in very little, how will you be faithful in much? Important life lessons. I mean, it couldn't have been more poetic that I got my first real lesson on a cardinal sin in a Baptist church parking lot, right? Yeah, we had to drive over to Messiah Lutheran for me to receive the grace. No, I'm kidding, I'm <laughs> kidding. But, but there it was. Right? This text, this text out of Luke's gospel is a doozy, this parable. It's one of the most confusing parables from Jesus. Right? The ending of this, we seem to understand. Jesus speaks very clearly. If you're not faithful in a little, you won't be faithful in much. You cannot serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Ooh should make all of us a little bit uncomfortable, right? But the beginning part of this parable, it's a little confusing. We're told, um, Jesus tells this parable about a manager who had been uh, mismanaging the owner's property, the, the owner's accounts. Most scholars, if you pull off a commentary, a biblical commentary off the shelf, they believe that he was, uh, Jesus was probably referring in this parable to mismanagement uh, to the effect of the manager um, increasing prices and pocketing some of that, which would have been maybe common during that, during that time, still common today, right? Um, so he's, he's taking money that doesn't belong to him and he's caught for it. And he's brought before the owner of the vineyard and he's told to give an accounting and he's ashamed. He's too weak to dig and too proud to beg, so he devises a plan. He's going to draw all of his owner's debtors to him and he's going to go over their bill, um, uh, past due accounts. And he thinks, now I'm going to lower their bill. I'm already already on the outs with the owner, but I can at least draw some favor up with these people because I'm going to need a new job. So he reduces their bill. And to our surprise, the owner likes it. He's not upset by it. He actually commends him. We're even led to believe he maybe can keep his job. Why is that? Well, my take on this is that the owner um, won't have any dishonesty when it costs him money. But when dishonesty will actually put money in his pocket, he's totally fine with it. These were enormous sums of money that were owed to him. A hundred jugs of olive oil? I'm led to believe that the owner had kind of, um, he had come to a place of realizing he might not ever collect that debt, right? So the manager does something wise. He actually gets money in the owner's hand that maybe the owner never would have collected. And so what is that? that we're often not okay with dishonesty when it costs us something, but when we profit from dishonesty, all of a sudden, it's totally fine, right? All of this is sort of building to that final phrase of Jesus. You can't serve God and wealth, but then it gets really confusing. Jesus seems to, in verse 9, actually commend dishonest wealth. And actually commend this generation that can practice that. And, and he says, if children of the light could do the same. We scratch our heads because it doesn't sound a whole lot like, like Jesus, the Jesus we're used to, right? It's a confusing parable. And it's hard to answer all of it. I'm lent to believe that, that Jesus was using some extreme sarcasm In the beginning, the dishonest manager says that he'll reduce these debts so that he may be welcomed into people's homes. And the Greek word here in the text is oikos, the Greek word for household, real residences. But when Jesus refers to this later for the children of light, he says eternal homes. Make sure that you are invited into the eternal homes. Maybe Jesus is being sarcastic here drawing us all to this conclusion that dishonest wealth will not grant you into eternity. It's confusing. But the message for me that has really been swirling around this week has to do with those final few sentences where Jesus is very clear that we cannot serve two purposes. We cannot serve two masters, wealth and God. And it got me thinking this week, what is the force that is driving my life? What is the ultimate thing that my life has grown to serve? Is it wealth? Is it security, a sense of comfort and peace? Or is it pleasure, enjoyment, working towards pleasure? You see, I think there's always something that is driving our decision-making. And I think we need to reflect on what it is that we actually are serving, practically. We can get clues for that thing we're serving if we look at how we make decisions, how we spend our time, what consumes our mental energy, and at the end of the day, what actually tips the scale one way or the other. All of these things give us clues as to what is actually guiding our life. And some of us are serving the, the, the sense of security, right? We have many seniors in our community that, that, that need a sense of security financially, that need to be well cared for. But we also live in a culture that is obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure, don't we? It's almost as if pleasure is the guiding force all of America. It's why we have multi-billion dollar sports industries and, and stadiums that cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's the reason we don't just have 60 inch TVs, we have 95 inch TVs. It's, it's the reason that we have strip mall after strip mall after strip mall of retail stores all selling us something. And this is actually a very um, Freudian, Sigmund Freud, it's a very Freudian concept. Freud argued that the ultimate pursuit of man was pleasure, that pleasure would determine the choices of people again and again and again out of our primal instincts. And I think if we're not careful about it, pleasure does become the ultimate pursuit of our life. We work really, really hard so that we can what? Have fun. Enjoy life. The pursuit of the quote-unquote good life. Now, I enjoy a good time as much as anyone, but pleasure always breaks down in the pursuit of it. It always leaves us wanting more. It always leaves us empty at the end of the day, because we need bigger and better. Vacations have an expiration date, and then we go back into the rat race, hoping to work towards another week of fun, or enjoyment. Have you ever heard of Viktor Frankl? Anyone ever heard of Viktor Frankl? He was another psychotherapist, psychoanalyst who came right on the heels of Freud. He wasn't quite a contemporary of him, and his story is fascinating. Viktor Frankl was Austrian, and his entire family was caught up in the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Frankl entered the concentration camps with his entire family, and he's the only one that survived that experience. And he went on to write this seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankel argued against what Freud had proposed, that pleasure was the ultimate aim of the human life. It will determine um, decisions that people make, the pursuit of pleasure. And, and Frankel argued that we resort to pleasure as our default, if we don't have true meaning that is guiding our life. That the actual pursuit of an abundant life is wrapped up in finding meaning. And I want to read just a quote from this forward. Frankl said, He who has a why to live, he who has a why to live for, can bear almost any how." He describes poignantly those prisoners who gave up on life, who had lost all hope for a future and were inevitably the first to die. They died less from the lack of food or medicine than from the lack of hope, lack of something to live for. By contrast, Frankel kept himself alive and kept hope alive by summoning up thoughts of his wife and the prospect of seeing her again and by dreaming at one point of lecturing after the war about the psychological lessons to be learned from the Auschwitz experience. Clearly, many prisoners who desperately wanted to live did die, some from disease, some in the crematoria. But Frankl's concern is less with the question of why most died than with the question of why anyone at all survived. Terrible as it was, His experience in Auschwitz reinforced what was already one of his key ideas. Life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught, but a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. And Frankl saw three possible sources for meaning. In work doing something significant in love, caring for another person, and encouraged during the difficult times. I think that this is what Jesus was also trying to point His disciples to. That you cannot have two masters. You can't have two ultimate driving forces in your life, whether it's wealth or pleasure or joy or the pursuit of a good life and God and ultimate meaning, and ultimate purpose. And Jesus was trying to push his disciples to pursue mission and meaning, which would be costly, yes, but would also give an abundance of joy that couldn't be experienced in any other way. Lately in my pastoral ministry, I've been meeting with lots of folks here at Prince of Peace, many of whom are going through really hard times. Hardship in marriages, hardship in friendships, hardships when it comes to finances. And they know, and we know, when we go through those hardships, that the pursuit of pleasure always leaves us feeling empty. But in the midst of our pain and in the midst of life's problems, when we pursue purpose, we're never disappointed. Purpose, meaning, life, The pursuit of loving with a gospel love will never leave us empty. And so this week, I invite you to join me in wrestling with this. What is the meaning that is guiding my life? Is there a greater purpose that's getting me out of bed? What is drawing me to live and love like Jesus? And how do I do that here, right where I'm planted? join me in this prayer and join me in giving thanks to God that Jesus knew his meaning. Jesus knew his mission. Jesus didn't listen to the temptations of the devil on the mountaintop who promised all the kingdoms of the world and all the pleasure that came with it. Rather, Jesus stayed focused on loving and serving, on dying and rising so that all might have life. That's the Lord we worship. And it's that example we follow. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Prince of Peace podcast. I hope that today's message has brought comfort and inspiration to your life. Have a great rest of the week.